guys, and welcome to the Moms and Mysteries podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. We are already in the second week of January. Can you believe it? We are, and we're actually not in the second week of January, (laughs) which is the more surprising part. We're actually ahead this year, Mandy. Already. We're already ahead this year, and we're not even in the year yet. Yeah, so we're, uh, we're recording still in December. It's great to be ahead, but I do have to say the crappy thing about being ahead and recording ahead of time is that everything you say is irrelevant by the time the listeners hear it. (laughs) So, I mean, everything I say is irrelevant most of the time anyway. So it's not (laughs) like you're really missing out on anything. But yeah, it's still December. It's still, it hasn't even, we haven't even crossed into the new year. We haven't. I still have goals to make, goals to fail. I have all kinds of stuff to do and to not to do. And all my pop culture references this week done. Nobody will even remember them. (laughs) This is like the Don't Worry Darling premiere week all over again. Once it's recorded and you've talked about it a week later, nobody cares. Right. (laughs) I'm going to be careful. Yeah. All right. So we'll get into the story for this week. And I'm actually excited to share the story this week because it kind of goes off of the story from last week a little bit, not entirely. Um, So last week, we did tell the story about Robert Kissel, who was a wealthy investment banker living abroad in Hong Kong when he was savagely bludgeoned to death by his wife, Nancy, leaving their three young children's livelihoods in the balance. The children were sent back to the United States to live with various family members, including Robert's brother, Andrew, and his wife, Haley, who lived in Greenwich, Connecticut. At the end of the episode, we gave a little hint as to what this week's episode is going to be about when we revealed that Rob's brother, Andrew Kissel, suffered the same fate as him a few years later. The story of Andrew's death is quite different than Robert's, and we're going to get into all of it right now. Andrew Kissel was born on August 23rd, 1959, to parents Elaine and Bill, and he was the oldest of the three Kissel children. There was Rob from last week's episode, and they also had a sister. As we said last week, the Kissel family was pretty well off, and Andrew and his siblings grew up with many luxuries in life, including a large home on a few acres of land, a swimming pool, and a boat. But the Kissel children were far from being spoiled. They had very high expectations placed on them, and their father was particularly hard on the two boys. There were rules, and they were absolutely expected to be followed. As kids growing up, Andrew and Rob loved to hang out together. They rode bikes around the neighborhood, played football in the yard, or just played board games inside. Andrew was kind of the opposite of his brother Rob when it came to their personalities. While Rob was always the outgoing and funny type, Andrew was a lot quieter and more reserved. Being outgoing wasn't something that really came naturally to him, and he just had to work a little harder due to his more what was described as monotone personality. Friends said that the two brothers were truly like night and day. They were completely different people. So last week, we talked a lot about how Rob was gifted in mathematics, and he easily became this financial whiz without a lot of difficulty or effort on his part. He was just born with the talent of understanding numbers. Andrew, on the other hand, didn't have it so easy. He was intelligent, but he didn't enjoy school as much, and he would take shortcuts where he could, which is something his brother Rob would never do. Once Andrew graduated from high school, he waited a few years before he enrolled in college at Boston University. It's unclear whether or not Andrew ever got a degree from Boston University. Um, He actually used to go around telling people he got a master's degree in business from NYU, but that was a lie. But we don't know if he got a degree from Boston University or not. By 1990, though, Andrew had managed to make a name for himself as a real estate developer in New York City. 
Later that year, on May 26, Andrew got married to Haley Wolf, who was a world-class skier and came from a prominent family in New York City. In 1992, they moved into a luxury co-op apartment in the Upper East Side of New York. And eventually, the couple did have two children, one in 1997 and one in 2000. Andrew was working at a commercial real estate firm, and Haley was working as a securities analyst on Wall Street during this time period. By 1994, Andrew was working at his own real estate firm that he called the Hanrock Group. About a year later, he agreed to serve as the co-op's treasurer, and it seemed like the Kissels came into an abundance of wealth after this point, which everyone assumed was due to Andrew being successful in real estate. What people didn't know was that Andrew had actually found a little shortcut to making his millions, and that was with embezzlement. For the next seven years, Andrew took about $3.9 million, which he was able to get away with because he had sole access to bank accounts and he had been sending out fake bank statements. Now, as we've already said, Andrew was really totally the opposite of Rob, who would have never gotten himself into an illegal situation such as embezzling funds. Rob didn't even like to flaunt his money, but that was just one more way that he and Andrew were different. Andrew always wanted to show off what he had, and he loved to impress people with his money and his possessions. Money really burned a hole in his pocket, and he couldn't spend it fast enough. Andrew really wanted people to like him, and it seemed like he used his money to make that happen. The luxury apartment that they lived in had the finest of everything. Doorknobs, flooring, everything. When I think of doorknobs, I'm like, how could they be nice? But then I've looked at the prices of them and they can be crazy. So, oh, yeah. Well, and I feel like it's one of those things that you don't really think about unless you go to someone's house and they have fancy doorknobs and right. then they're like, oh, okay, this is definitely like a luxury touch on a on a home this for sure. This is how the other half right. lives. Yeah. <laughs> but Andrew had also made some other big purchases with this embezzled money including a ski house in Vermont, just like his brother Rob had, an 85-foot yacht, which was $3.6 million, jet skis, and more than 30 classic and luxury cars, including four Ferraris. I mean, Jay Leno having a bunch of cars is one thing, (laughs) but this (laughs) real estate guy having 30 classic and luxury cars, that is wild. Like, I I don't get, I don't get it, but I'm not a car person, I guess. But by 2002, the jig was up. The co-op board figured out that Andrew had been stealing from them when they realized that some of the numbers just weren't adding up. Andrew reported that the building spent a million dollars to redo the lobby and hallways, but everyone who lived there knew there was no way that these renovations would cost that much. So that's when they started looking into things further and realized what exactly was going on. When the board confronted Andrew about it, he begged them not to tell authorities and promised to pay them back, which is like over $3 million. Wow. That just gives me anxiety thinking about paying back $3 million. Where do you start? I don't know. Like, I'll buy you a Starbucks on the first day, (laughs) give you a 20 the next day. I don't know how you even do it. So somehow, though, the co-op agreed to this. Very generous of them. Yeah, totally. Like, it would be very easy for them to be like, actually, we want our money back. We've been paying our money for, you know, for you to have this life. Andrew told them, you know, his kids need their dad not to be in jail. And so the board shows him a bit of mercy. Shockingly, Andrew did pay the money back, and it seemed like everyone moved on for the whole thing. Or Mandy, did they? Well, Melissa, after the whole embezzlement ordeal, Andrew and Haley moved their kids to Greenwich, Connecticut, which is where some of the wealthiest people in America call home. The house they lived in was a $14,000 a month mansion on a large piece of land in what they called the backcountry. 
So they really settled into a quiet new life there. Then on November 2nd, 2003, tragedy struck when Andrew's brother, Robert Kissel, was murdered by his wife, Nancy, which, as we've said, was the topic of last week's entire episode. So we won't go into details about it this week. Following Robert's death, Andrew and Haley got temporary custody of Rob's three kids. Andrew took his brother's murder extremely hard, and those that knew him said he never really recovered from it, and it was to the point that things really began to spiral out of control for him. A friend of Andrew said that his perspective changed, and he had an attitude of, I need to make myself happy right now. You know, don't wait for the future because tomorrow is not promised. So he kind of took on this, what can I do in the moment, right now? And so he started doing things like giving away large amounts of money. He would give friends as much as $50,000 and tell them, you know, hey, go have a nice weekend, which – Have a nice life. Yeah, (laughs) right? No kidding. (laughs) Like I can't imagine having a friend who was so generous to give me an extra $50,000. It ain't going to be me. (laughs) Right. So um, (laughs) he was also throwing these extravagant parties on his yacht. He invested tens of thousands of dollars into various businesses in Greenwich and much more. He actually bought an entire stable, like the entire business, um, because one of his kids said that they were interested in riding horses, which I just think is so funny. So my kid is like interested in basketball, but like that would be the equivalent of me buying like a basketball team and being like, this is ours now. Like, I'm so happy that I can buy you that because we are millionaires, I guess. I don't know. I I don't get it. (laughs) I'm like, okay, well, I'll buy you a My Little Pony. I don't really see if you still like that in a week. Maybe we'll go ride. I don't know. So by the summer of 2004, Haley had found out that Andrew was having an affair. She confided in her sister-in-law, Jane, who she'd really been telling everything to for months regarding some of these suspicions that she was having about Andrew. So soon after Haley told Jane about Andrew's affair, she mentioned that she also suspected that Andrew's business was actually a Ponzi scheme, and she was concerned that he would go to jail. And Haley told Jane she didn't want to explain to the children why their dad was behind bars. Haley allegedly had no idea about the embezzlement back in New York until Andrew got busted for it. Although people always kind of questioned how she didn't know. But we hear this all the time where one spouse is doing something crazy with money. And if the other one's not involved in like the day-to-day finances, they might not ever know. I feel like financial things are the easiest for me to believe that a spouse wouldn't know about because there are many ways I feel like that you could hide financial things. It doesn't take like... It takes nothing to like open a bank account secretly, you know, that your spouse doesn't know about. And how would they? You know what I mean? Unless, I don't know. I can see how people can get away with things like that for sure. I don't think necessarily like the wife is always in on it or anything like that. Yeah. She said she was just scared to ask questions because Andrew would really lash out at her if she started to pry into the details of their finances. He told her it was none of her business and said things like, quote, I don't tell you how to do your job, end quote. Haley wanted to believe her husband was a good person underneath it all, but she also knew he was suffering from bipolar moods, addictive personality, and low self-esteem, and Andrew had also become a cocaine user. Haley felt as though Andrew wasn't emotionally available to her, and sometimes he even stood her up for dates that they had planned. So now that they're living in Connecticut and Haley's found out about Andrew having this affair, she started to question other things that he may have been involved in. And she had a legitimate reason to think Andrew was up to no good, because he absolutely was. Upon moving to Connecticut, he began running a new scam in which he fraudulently purchased and developed expensive investment properties. The scam he was running went like this. He would go to the bank and apply for a mortgage to buy an investment property. 
Once mortgage A was secured, he would then go to another bank and apply for a loan to get another property, mortgage B. So in order to make it seem like he didn't owe any money on mortgage A, he would forge a document from the bank saying he had already paid off mortgage A. That way it looked like he had less debt than he actually did. He'd secure mortgage B while still having mortgage A and then do it all over again. Andrew had also stolen a notary public stamp from a former employee, which he used on his paperwork. In February of 2005, Haley decided that enough was enough and she filed for a divorce. Even though things were tense, Haley continued to live in the house that they shared in Greenwich. She also continued talking regularly with Jane, who, as we said before, was Andrew's sister. In May of 2005, she actually sent Jane an email that said she was lying in bed fantasizing about killing Andrew, which is kind of a crazy thing to say to your husband's sister, of all people. Right. Well, and they, you know, they've gone through this murder of her Jane's brother by his wife. So it it does seem like a lot's going on and maybe we shouldn't say everything out loud. Right, exactly. So Jane simply responded by asking Haley if she was okay. And Haley didn't write back until the next morning. But then she responded and said, quote, I could actually see myself pummeling him to death and just enjoying the sensation, end quote. So that's a no? Yeah. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) To, to still say that the next morning, it's like, wow, you can definitely tell that there was some serious conflict in their marriage yeah. because even after sleeping on it, you know, it's like we all say things and, you know, we don't mean them, but it's like to even wake up the next morning and still be feeling this way and still say these things to his sister. It's like there's clearly some things that are wrong. Yeah. But it would only be a few more weeks before Andrew was officially outed as a fraudster after one of his careless mistakes was noticed by a title attorney that was processing some of the mortgage applications he was putting in. So this attorney, we'll call her Rachel, was looking at Andrew's loan paperwork, and she noticed something a little sketchy. She saw that the A in Andrew's signature looked an awful lot like the letter A in the name of the employee who had signed the paper, stating that another $5.5 million mortgage had been paid off. So basically, he's going to the bank and he's saying, here's this paper that they signed showing that I've already paid off this debt. And so she's like, hmm, that's crazy and funny that your signature looks a lot like this guy's signature. And it starts off that way with the A. So this prompted her to then just call that bank and verify that Andrew really was free and clear of the mortgage, and she learned that he was not. She learned that Andrew still owed this other bank money. At this point, she put two and two together, and she knew that Andrew must have forged the employee's signature. So she stopped the deal from going through, and she contacted the FBI to dig into the matter. Once the FBI got involved, it was really all over. Andrew was found to be running another multi-million dollar scam in a different state, involving apartment complexes actually in New Jersey. Andrew had ripped off investors there by forging signatures and secretly pocketing profits from selling these properties off without telling the investors that they had been sold. So he kept up the act by sending the investors a quarterly dividend, which he was able to pay because of his other scam, which is a benchmark of a Ponzi scheme. And among the investors that Andrew ripped off in this particular scheme were his brother, Rob, and his father-in-law. And we have so much more to get into with this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Wondery has done it again with their podcast, Suspect. 
The first season of Suspect was absolutely jaw-dropping, and this season has managed to do the same. On a winter night in a small community near Denver, Colorado, a man named Jim Matthews arrives to his house late. When he gets home, he expects to find his 12-year-old daughter Janelle to be there right after her Christmas concert. But instead, when he calls out for his daughter, he only heard silence in return. Janelle's shoes were on the floor, but she was gone, and it would be 35 years before she was found dead. Janelle Matthews' body was found in 2019, and this discovery caused police to turn their attention to a man who had told law enforcement officers years before that he knew something about Janelle's disappearance. But police dismissed him. This man had always been obsessed with her case, but is that all it was, or was it something far more sinister? Was he a true crime fanatic? or maybe a killer. Wondery and Campside Media's podcast Suspect is back for a second season with a story that attempts to separate one man's true crime obsession from a motive for murder. I actually started this podcast a few days ago and finished it last night with my Wondery Plus subscription. The host is really incredible. She's a mom herself. So you get this other perspective from her, something we don't hear a lot from other podcasts, including commentary on the idea of stranger danger from back in the 80s. Listen to Suspect wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Prime members, you can binge the entire series ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Without being too cheesy, a new year is a great time to start new goals. And if, like me, one of your goals is just feeling better overall, Noom may be just what you're looking for. We know everyone's journey with food and exercise is personal, which is a big part of why I like Noom. I'm not interested in a magic number on the scale, but I am interested in feeling better. I found that eating better and exercising makes me feel better. But why is that so hard to get started? Noom can help you get started with things like daily lessons that are personalized to you and your goals. Noom isn't a one-size-fits-all program. It's a one-size-fits-you program. Noom's focus is on progress and not perfection. I find Noom to be encouraging, which makes me want to try to succeed. The old drill sergeant behavior is not something that works for me, but having access to coaching with Noom absolutely does. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom Weight's psychology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at noom.com slash moms. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash moms to sign up for your trial today. And check out Noom's first ever book, The Noom Mindset, a deep dive into the psychology of behavior change. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we were discussing Andrew Kissel and some of these schemes that he's gotten himself involved in and how kind of this house of cards is starting to fall apart. So all in all, Andrew had managed to defraud his way into $25 million over three states. He was charged by federal authorities in New York on July 28th with perpetrating phony million-dollar real estate deals in Connecticut, New York, and Vermont that led to banks and investors losing money. Andrew pleaded not guilty to these crimes and was released on a $1 million bond. He was ordered to stay on house arrest at his mansion with an ankle bracelet on. Haley allowed this. She was living there too because she knew that Andrew would be going to prison soon. So she wanted to have her kids spend as much time with him as possible before he was gone. It was at this point that Robert and Nancy's three kids were removed from Andrew and Haley's care due to these ongoing legal troubles. They go to live with Andrew's sister, Jane, which caused a major rift between Jane and Haley, who, as we said, were really very close at one point. Jane was basically Haley's confidant. 
Then, a few months later, Andrew was charged with grand larceny and fraud by a Manhattan grand jury in connection with the $3.9 million he embezzled while serving as the co-op treasurer. Once again, he pleaded not guilty and bonded himself out of jail with $10,000 in cash. This amount was so low because he was already out on a million-dollar bond, which is kind of a wild thing to me to be like, well, you're already out. We rearrested you, and now it's even cheaper. Yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, actually. <laughs> Especially not when this guy's got mansions and yachts and right. all kinds of stuff. You can get a little more out of him, I think. Exactly. <laughs> so at this point, Andrew's assets, like the yachts we were mentioning, the cars, started being sold off to pay his debts. In late February of 2006, Things were running dry, and Andrew actually sought to force Haley to pay him alimony. And so in response to this, Haley filed papers demanding that Andrew give her sole possession of the Greenwich home and to move out immediately. She said in this paperwork that Andrew had been belligerent, especially while intoxicated, and had been drinking to excess in front of their young daughters. This was kind of an interesting move because Haley and Andrew had both agreed to vacate the home on March 31st because evidently they hadn't paid their rent for six months. Each month cost $14,300, so it had racked up enough that the landlord filed a lawsuit against them. Yeah, I'd say. <laughs> I know. I would think <laughs> I would think one month of not paying a right? rent like that would send alarm bells immediately. Like That's crazy that you could even get away without paying rent for six months on a place like that. But sometimes those, like, rental laws are so wild. Like, you've heard of people who, like, stop paying their rent and they just become squatters in the home. Oh, and, and they the have homeowner. rights in Florida. If you do that. It is. <laughs> don't do. Bizarre. Yeah. In Florida, if you're going to squat, come here. <laughs> right. They will have to let you. So some people, though, wondered why Haley would kick Andrew out, knowing they were moving in a few weeks anyway. Not me. I understand why she would do that. Like, this situation has gone from bad to worse. So in March, Andrew and the prosecutors came to an agreement in which Andrew would plead guilty to bank fraud and accept a sentence of five to eight years in prison. He was scheduled to appear in court to make this plea deal on April 7th, but Andrew didn't make it to that court date. Movers showed up to the Greenwich mansion on April 1st to move everything out. Andrew and Haley were seen and heard bickering all day long in front of the movers, and one of these arguments was about a large sum of money and some jewelry that Haley was accusing Andrew of selling. Another argument was about how Andrew wanted to stay at their home for the weekend. Haley ended up relenting, and she took the kids, and they left and went and stayed somewhere else. In the meantime, their stuff was moved into a storage unit until they could figure out their next move. There were three truckloads of stuff removed by the movers before Andrew asked them to stop and just leave a few things there until April the 3rd because he wanted to stay in the house until then. So he just wanted them to leave some like essential things like a bed to sleep on and stuff like that. He was just going to be staying a couple more days. Right. So Andrew stayed alone at the mansion on the night of April 2nd. Records show that the last phone call made from his phone was at 3.44 p.m. that day. The next morning, which is now April the 3rd, movers arrived at the mansion to get the rest of the things. They got there between 8 and 8.30 that morning, and they ran into an issue getting through the front gate. So the movers called Haley, who gave them the code, and the movers went inside and started moving the remaining items out of the mansion. Once everything was loaded up, the movers decided to just do a quick walkthrough and check the basement just to make sure that they weren't missing anything before they left. Down in the basement, in the boiler room, a shocking discovery was made. Andrew was found gagged and blindfolded, with his feet and hands tightly bound with zip ties, and his shirt was pulled over his head. There was a pool of blood on the floor, and it was clear that he'd been stabbed multiple times. 
The movers dialed 911, and then they called Haley and told her that she needed to get to the house right away. They just said, there's a situation here. And Haley just said, oh, okay. But she didn't question what was happening and didn't really have any real reaction to this phone call at all. She just, the movers were calling saying, come over, and she was like, okay. So she headed yeah. over. That that really could mean anything. There's For a situation sure. yeah. he doesn't want to move out. Who knows? Like, she's been dealing with a lot at this point. So it was learned through autopsy that Andrew was stabbed five times with one being to the neck, which severed his carotid artery, a fatal injury. He also had four stab wounds to his upper and lower back, causing his lung and diaphragm to be punctured. One of these wounds was five inches deep. The medical examiner said that either of the wounds that hit his vital organs could have been fatal as well. Toxicology reports showed that Andrew was intoxicated and under the influence of cocaine at the time of his murder. The initial investigation showed no signs of a struggle or forced entry, leading police to believe that the killer was either let in by Andrew himself through the security gate or someone with a code to the gate and a key to the house was responsible. The items used to blindfold and gag Andrew were really improvised items, aka these were items found at the scene and not brought in from outside, which typically they talk about not being improvised items, right? People right. normally go somewhere with the intention and they bring something with them. Right. It was really just pieces of ripped up clothing that were used. Investigators believed that this meant the killer had an emotional connection to Andrew and didn't want to look into his eyes or hear him during the murder. Not to mention, there was no reason to even gag him at all because nobody would be able to hear him anyway since this mansion sat on several acres of backcountry and they were in the basement. Aside from all the blood, the crime scene was pretty clean, and none of the evidence found any significant DNA or fingerprints on them, which seemed like the killer must have been wearing gloves. They said it was a very controlled crime scene. All of this told officers that the murder wasn't just a random event and that there was some sort of a personal reason behind it. However, considering the fact that Andrew had pissed off a lot of people in his lifetime, that didn't really help narrow down the list of suspects. Andrew had a lot of enemies. They thought it could have been someone he screwed over with his fraudulent activities or possibly due to his drug habits or his contentious divorce. There were really a number of reasons that a number of people would possibly want him dead. I think that's so interesting uh, in some cases when you hear that there was so many suspects because in so many cases, it's always the opposite that you hear like this right. person had no enemies, like they can't think of anybody who would want to hurt them. But in this case, they're like, well, actually the list of suspects is very long and it's going to take us a while to kind of sort through, you know, all of these options. So the investigators did question a ton of people in uh, connection with this murder, but we're only going to focus on the main ones. All of the investors that Andrew defrauded were interviewed and it was learned that none of those investors had quote, sustained any losses that were not insured. And none of them would have known Andrew was at the mansion alone that night. So they were all ruled out as suspects. Of course, Haley was also interviewed with her attorney present, and she was fully cooperative for her interview, and she provided the police with an alibi that did check out. Andrew's driver and personal assistant, a man named Carlos Trujillo, was also spoken to, and that's where they got a little bit of a break. Carlos said he had gone over to Andrew's mansion at about 6 p.m. on April 2nd, which is the night before he was found dead. And he said that he was there for about an hour, just chatting with Andrew and loading things into his car. 
Carlos was described as being Andrew's gopher. Like, he basically just did whatever Andrew wanted. He was always at his beck and call. He would bring him drugs when he wanted. He would bring him food when he wanted. Really was just available to Andrew at all times for any reason. Right. Carlos also told the investigators that Andrew confirmed to him that he did have a large sum of money hidden in the house. And this would be the same sum of money that he and Haley were heard arguing about earlier when the movers were there. The investigators thought it was interesting that Carlos even mentioned the money because when they had searched the mansion, they found that the money in question had actually been stolen. Investigators found an access panel within the master bedroom closet and it led to a crawl space and there was a locking mechanism on the door and that locking mechanism was actually broken and the crawl space inside was found to be empty. Since Carlos knew so much about the Kissels and he admitted to possibly being the last person to see Andrew alive, the police really wanted to dig deeper into Carlos's background and find out more about exactly who he was. According to another of Andrew's employees, Andrew always treated Carlos really poorly. And he even mentioned a time when Carlos went out of state for a family gathering, but was summoned back by Andrew, who wanted Carlos to go buy him a hamburger from Wendy's. After taking one bite of it, Andrew decided he didn't want it. And he made Carlos go get him a pizza instead. Investigators felt that this unfair and ridiculous treatment could be a possible motive for murder. Although numerous people were interviewed, something kept bringing them back to Carlos because he was the last person to see Andrew alive, and he often changed his story about exactly what he was up to on April 2nd. Interestingly enough is that Haley even brought up the theory that Andrew could have asked Carlo to kill him in a suicide-for-hire situation to avoid going to jail. Investigators seriously doubted this theory, though, because the way Andrew was killed was slow and painful, and nobody would choose that death for themselves. They would be more likely to choose something quicker, a pain-free death. Carlos later told 48 Hours that he was really the only person who stayed by Andrew's side through all of his legal problems, and he really had no friends left. Carlos said he loved Andrew, and he owed him a lot because Andrew did a lot to help him. Carlos provided his DNA and his fingerprints to investigators and allowed them to search his car, his home, and his storage unit. He also agreed to a polygraph, which he failed. Carlos said at that point he was beginning to feel like a suspect and a criminal, so he hired an attorney to help him. Carlos's attorney admitted that Andrew made a lot of enemies for himself, but insisted that Carlos was not one of them. He said that they were friends and that Carlos stuck by Andrew's side when no one else would. His attorney said he felt like the police spent too much time focusing on Carlos from the beginning when they really should have put in more effort into investigating other possible suspects, such as the dozens of people who were scammed by Andrew. But still, investigators felt that Carlos was a smart and calculating individual. There just wasn't enough evidence to charge him with a crime at that point. The lack of progress on figuring out who killed Andrew led to frustration from the public and the Kissel family. From the outside, it seemed like they just weren't working quickly enough, but in reality, there were so many tips and so much information to wade through. There were many leads and suspects, even though things kept coming back to Carlos. In July 2007, investigators were following another lead when they started looking into a credit card under the name Aminta Trujillo. So the card was originally found when they had searched Carlos's home for the first time. They found Aminta and started talking to her, and when they first contacted her, she actually thought they were looking for information about her family's history of involvement with the drug cartel. So imagine the police are showing Whoa. up, you know, they're contacting you, and they're 
trying to find out about this guy who's been murdered. And she's like, oh, you want to talk to me about the drug cartel? And they're like, wait a minute. Like, no, but yes, at the same time, like, what's going on here? We'll get to that in a second. (laughs) Right, exactly. So they told her, you know, they're actually investigating a homicide. And when she heard that, she said something along the lines of, quote, they killed the rich guy, end quote. So this statement was enough to open the door to potentially solving this case. Aminta then dropped a bombshell on the investigators. She willingly told them that her 21-year-old half-brother named Lenny had been recruited by Carlos to murder who she was calling the rich guy. Prior to this interview, police had never even heard of Lenny, and they later said they didn't even think that Aminta knew how much trouble she was getting him into by divulging this information. A closer look into the Trujillo family did reveal a few bargaining chips the investigators could use to approach Lenny with, though. They ended up offering him a deal. He could give them information about the murder, and in exchange, they would help his brother get a visa to stay in the U.S., and they would also help get some drug charges against his sister dropped. Lenny actually took the deal. He admitted to taking money from Carlos with the purpose of murdering Andrew. To elaborate, he said that Carlos gave him $11,000 and a new computer in the summer of 2005, but after he was paid, Lenny says he backed out of the deal because he actually never intended to murder anyone. He just really wanted the money. He also admitted to planning this murder for months, even going to Connecticut with Carlos to buy the supplies. According to Lenny, plans were made over numerous phone calls with Carlos being the one to initiate most of them. Lenny also traveled from his home in Worcester, Massachusetts to Connecticut by Amtrak and stayed in hotels. On one trip to visit Carlos, Lenny said that they went to Home Depot to purchase those zip ties that were used in Andrew's murder. And when he said this, it was really kind of alarming. This was a key detail. And police had never publicly stated that Andrew had been bound with zip ties. So that really is something that only those involved in the murder would know. So investigators now believe that Lenny was in fact involved. And we're going to get into the rest of this story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. My family and I send so many photos in our group chat. Sometimes I'll go to save them in my camera roll, but I'll realize that a photo of my nephew smiling while my niece is crying hysterically in the background seems kind of sad unless it's accompanied by the text from my sister saying, another great day of Christmas break. But with Keepster, I can turn these text conversations and photos into books to keep forever. Keepster is the only way to easily turn your favorite iPhone texts and photos into a beautiful keepsake book. Whether it's funny moments in the group chats to sweet and silly moments with your partner, now you can keep those memories forever with Keepster. To use Keepster, you just download the app onto your computer, choose your favorite texts, photos, emojis, inside jokes, and more, and Keepster does the rest. My mom's always telling me to write down all the random things my son says, and I've always brushed it off because that sounds like a lot of work. But with Keepster, I've started pulling these funny comments from our text threads and creating my Keepster book of my son's greatest hits. Plus, I can add context to some of those funny texts and photos, so years from now, it will make sense. Keepster is great for everything from birthdays to anniversaries and everything in between. And no matter what messaging service you use, whether it's iMessage, SMS, WhatsApp, or even Viber, which I didn't know was a thing, Keepster can work across all of them. Valentine's Day is just around the corner, and with books starting at just $12.99, it's a great way to create a book of memories for your sweetheart. Plus, if you're a procrastinator, you can even get a digital copy to give while you wait for the physical copy. We live and share so much of our lives on our phones. Now you can save what's special with Keepster. 
So if you have an iPhone, head to keepster.co slash moms and put in promo code moms for 20% off. That's keepster.co slash moms and use code moms for 20% off. One last time, keepster.co slash moms for 20% off. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. The new year is a great time to take charge of your mental health, and working with a therapist can help you get closer to being the best version of you in 2023. I'm a huge advocate of therapy, and it's something I've done throughout my adult life. Sometimes it's nice to be able to get all of your thoughts out to one person with no judgment, but guidance when it's needed. Moms especially, it's so hard to find time for yourself, even if that time you're needing is to help you be the best you you can be for your family. That's why BetterHelp can be a great option. It's convenient, flexible, affordable, and it's entirely online, which is especially great because sometimes just getting there is hard enough. To find the best therapist for you, you just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched to a licensed therapist. If you find the therapist you're matched with doesn't work for you, that's fine. You can switch therapists at any time and for no additional charge. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms. Just like Lenny Kravitz, I want to get away. I want to fly away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And while I'm stuck on the ground for now, I can settle for a new kind of journey, all with a fun mobile game. Step into the enchanting world of June Parker with June's Journey, where a spectacular adventure awaits you. And the best part? No plane tickets needed. Bid farewell to the ordinary and immerse yourself in a realm where intrigue dances with elegance, all thanks to the drama-filled escapades of our charming heroine, June Parker. Whether you crave a captivating mystery or simply wish to escape the humdrum of daily life, June's journey is your portal to excitement. Join June on her quest to uncover hidden family secrets and navigate the tangled web surrounding her sister's demise. So slip into your virtual flapper dress and dive into a world where each corner holds a new clue and every twist leaves you on the edge of your seat. But hold on to your pearls because June's Journey is no ordinary mobile game. I'm knee-deep in the fifth chapter, and each section is really more delightful than the last. From the breathtaking scenery to the catchy tunes, every aspect oozes sophistication and refinement. So don't hesitate any longer. Step into June's world and let the thrilling adventure unfold. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now back to the episode. So before the break, the police are zeroing in on Carlos uh, Trujillo and his cousin, Lenny Trujillo. And although Lenny admitted to having knowledge and helping plan the murder, he says he was not there when Andrew was killed and he had no idea what happened the night he was murdered. He actually claimed he was working in Massachusetts at the time. After his interview, Lenny was allowed to leave, and he really thought that was the end of it. In his eyes... He was innocent, and he didn't kill Andrew, so he didn't think he would be charged with anything. In an effort, though, to corroborate Lenny's story, officers did some more digging around, and they found a couple of things. In the four months leading up to Andrew's murder, Lenny and Carlos had a total of 52 phone calls, which was interesting since they didn't really talk to each other for years prior to this time. However, it was actually Lenny who initiated the majority of the calls, not Carlos, which is what Lenny told the police. When investigators looked into the visit Lenny said he made to Connecticut, they found receipts for the Amtrak as well as a motel, which Carlos paid for with his card. Further, when they went to the Home Depot that Lenny said they bought the zip ties from, they found that the store had a record of a cash purchase for the same make and model of zip ties as the ones used to tie up Andrew. Unfortunately, though, there was no way to prove who bought the zip ties. 
It could have been Lenny, it could have been Carlos, or it could have literally been an unrelated and total stranger. And Lenny allegedly had an alibi for the time of the murder, too. Although his alibi seemed to check out, investigators believed Lenny was at the house helping Carlos on the night of the murder, but they weren't sure whether or not he actually took part in the murder itself. They theorized that the two cousins, Lenny and Carlos, went to Andrew's with cocaine as a trick to make sure Andrew let them inside. What happened next, though, isn't clear. It's not known who actually killed Andrew, and it's even not known for sure whether or not there was a third party there besides Lenny and Carlos. But the question of why still remained. Why would either of them want Andrew dead? Well, as it turned out, there may have actually been a good reason. After Andrew's assets were frozen, he had Carlos and some of his family members help him launder money through their personal bank accounts. However, at some point during this process, $200,000 of Andrew's money disappeared and never showed up again. He was actually murdered four days before he was supposed to plead guilty to bank fraud. So investigators thought it might be possible that Andrew had accused Carlos of stealing the money and was planning on turning him in for it. They strongly believe that Andrew was killed because Carlos thought he was going to turn in his whole family, who, as we said, has all these connections with cartels. So they're thinking there has to be some kind of connection here. There's so much. <laughs> yeah. So after Lenny kind of sort of corroborated the story, authorities felt they had enough to bring charges on both of them. Carlos was charged with conspiracy to commit murder, and 21-year-old Lenny was charged with murder and conspiracy. Both men pleaded not guilty. However, just before Lenny was set to go to trial in July of 2009, he took a plea deal and changed his plea to guilty of manslaughter and conspiracy to commit murder, and he agreed to also testify against Carlos. And he was to be sentenced after Carlos's trial was over. Carlos didn't go to trial until November 2010, and by the time he was in court, the charges against him had been amended to murder and attempted murder. Prosecutors said that Carlos wanted Andrew dead because he'd been helping him with fraudulent activities, and they introduced evidence of the money laundering scheme. Unfortunately, all of this information was incredibly confusing for the layman, and the jury had a hard time following and understanding it. And this would be like my biggest fear in a if I was a juror, and like mm -hmm. it would be my biggest fear to get a case where like just things about about like this, Financial like, I wouldn't understand what was going on. And like, I feel the same way. As soon as you start talking to me about like financial scams and stuff, like I do not follow. Like I really just don't no. get it. I don't understand how people come up with these schemes. Like I, I honestly don't. I feel like I'm just not smart enough. I am clearly not blessed with, you know, the, you know, ability to I understand numbers. I think that's a good thing. Yeah. I think it's a good thing that it's not so natural or for I'm you that like as math, people talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> that you're like, yeah, no, I, I'd follow that. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably do it too. Like yeah. that's a good thing to not be very comfortable in that world. World. But yeah, same to me, like, and there's no way to really dumb that down enough for me to really get it. Me either. Yeah. So another downfall was that prosecutors had to admit to the jury that they didn't even know for sure who actually killed Andrew. Their star witness was Lenny, and his testimony was pretty much the entire case, which was another mistake since the investigators didn't even believe everything that Lenny told them in the first place. So how could they expect the jurors to believe him? At times, Lenny's testimony was even different from the statements that he gave to the police, which, of course, just makes things even more complicated when you get in the, into the courtroom. The defense said the only evidence they had against Carlos was the things Lenny said, and that Lenny was a liar who made up this whole story. They said Carlos never hired Lenny to help murder Andrew, and that Carlos had nothing to do with it either. 
prosecutors asked why Lenny would implicate himself in a murder he wasn't even involved in. And the defense theorized that Lenny was instructed by his father in Colombia to lie about his involvement in the murder so that he could help get his brother, Avisa, and his sister get her drug charges dropped. And to ruin Carlos due to their longstanding feud. But tell me this. I have a lot of questions about this, but like your dad's going to say, hey, I just need you to plead guilty to murder. Your brother needs a visa. Your sister has some drug charges. <laughs> you don't know that they're going to even give them that, right? Right. It seemed to me like the police were like, hey, we know your family's involved in stuff. Here's what we can give you. It wasn't like he didn't go in there with the bargaining chips. The police had the bargaining chips to get him to talk, right? Yeah. I mean, it sounds a little... It doesn't sound like a good deal for him, for sure. But I like how I'm very fixated on this. I'm yeah. like, what? This doesn't make sense. So I guess where this comes from is Lenny's dad hates Carlos because of this ongoing property dispute with their families in Colombia. This family has a lot going on. They do. And so the defense said that Lenny and Carlos supposedly planned these murders together. And if that were true, you'd expect it to be Carlos as the one making the majority of these 52 phone calls that they shared in the months leading up to the murder. But that wasn't the case. It was Lenny that made most of these calls. The defense said the date on the receipt for the Home Depot trip where they bought the zip ties didn't match the date Lenny said he was with Carlos in Connecticut. And there was no way to prove Carlos had been involved in this purchase at all. On December 16th, after deliberating for four days, the jury found Carlos not guilty of murder. When Carlos found out he was acquitted, he was elated. The jurors later told CBS News that it all came down to whether or not they believed Lenny. And in the end, they didn't think the prosecutors proved their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And they got hung up on the fact that nobody could prove who bought the zip ties. They weren't able to come to an agreement on the attempted murder charge and ended up voting 7-5 to five with the majority favoring a conviction. But a mistrial was declared because they weren't unanimous. So then it was up to the prosecution to decide whether they wanted to drop the charges of the attempted murder, offer Carlos a plea deal, or take him to trial again. And so they decided to offer him a deal. On March 25th, 2011, Carlos accepted a plea deal where he entered an Alford plea for attempted murder and immediately got a sentence of 20 years in prison, suspended after six years, plus credit for time served, so he only had to serve three more years but he would be deported back to Colombia upon his release. Interestingly, Nancy Kissel, who was Robert Kissel's wife and murderer, was also found guilty at her retrial on the same day. On April 15th, 2011, Lenny was sentenced to 20 years, but the prosecutor said, quote, I suppose we will never know whether Leonard Trujillo was more involved than he says, but his failure to warn anyone, I think, merits this agreed-upon disposition. Lenny did not make a statement. He also did get credit for three years of time served. Investigators said that it spoke volumes for Lenny to accept 20 years for planning a murder and that it only confirmed to authorities that he must have actually been involved. One of the investigators said, I asked him, how do you like your sentence? And he said he was good with it. The investigator continued, if I stole $11,000 and got a lousy computer and took 20 years in jail for it and had this detective sitting in front of me asking how I feel about it, I would have jumped over the table and knocked him out, which, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. It's, it's wild. So another detective added, quote, he's giving up the best years of his life. As we said before, Lenny was only 21. So th wow. that's what the investigators are saying. Like, why would a 21-year-old agree to spend 20 years in prison, you know, unless they really knew that they had something to do with it? 
Right. So as for where they are now, Lenny is incarcerated in the Osborne Correctional Institution in Summers, Connecticut. There is no estimated release date listed. However, his maximum release date is in July 2027, and he will be 41 years old at the time. According to Lenny's write-a-prisoner profile, he's been taking college classes while in prison, and he is also a tutor. His two teenage children aspire him to be the best human being he can be every day. We couldn't find an update on Carlos, but if he did serve his whole sentence, he would have been released in or around 2014, and it is most likely that he was deported back to Colombia when he was released. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was not expecting – so I knew I knew the Robert Kissel case – pretty well. Andrews, I didn't know. I knew he was murdered, but I didn't really know the details surrounding it. I had no idea that, you know, the person who who was accused of murdering him was actually acquitted of the actual murder. Like that that's pretty wild. It seems to me that they did not have enough evidence to go to trial, went to trial, and it kind of fell apart. Yeah, I well, I said last week I didn't really wasn't even really familiar with uh, the Robert Kissel case. So for me, both of these stories were just like mind blowing that um, all of this has kind of happened in this one family. I feel like this is yeah. this is what this is what they meant when they said more money, more problems. <laughs> Mandy, we are not quoting Big in this one. <laughs> we are, we are. But I mean, seriously, you know, it's like, and of course, not everybody who has money has like all these crazy things going on in their life, sure. but like. How wild. Like, oh my gosh. I feel like money is always the one thing that makes people do the craziest things. Like in, yeah. in most of the stories that we hear about, it's like money is always the driving force. And it's like, gosh, I I don't want to have any money. Like, never mind. You can have all my money. <laughs> I, well, then that works out great for me. Um, but no, I agree. Like, I like ha not worrying about bills. But beyond that, like, there's a lot that can be said for not having a ton of money. People aren't asking you for money. People, you know, you there's not you don't have this clutch on it. I think some people have. Not everybody. There's some very charitable people that have a lot of money, stuff like that. But like this situation with the two of them is really sad because a lot of it really did come down to money. Andrew wanted money. He did everything he could to get money. And then Robert had money and part of the reason his wife likely killed him was because she didn't want to be cut out of his money. So yeah. It's just sad all the way around. Very, very sad. And sad that, like, there's two people who have been murdered in this family. I mean, it's just – Yeah. I can't imagine, you know, for the for the rest of the family having to kind mm -hmm. of go on in the wake of that. And Jane, you know, has lost both of her brothers, and it's just terrible. Right. Yeah, for sure. All right, Melissa. So before we move on out of here this week, we are going to do a little last thing before we go. If you are yes. new to the show, um, we do a little segment at the end of each episode. We call it Last Thing Before We Go, and we just kind of talk about something a little more lighthearted, a little more casual, and it has nothing to do with the topic that we just discussed. So, um, Melissa, this week, we're going to share some of our – we're going to share some words to live by. Is that what we're doing? I guess. I don't know. I got it's a all new weird year. about the it's new year. It's a new year. year. Yeah. <laughs> so I, my thought was like one quote that you find funny or you like and one you want to take into the new year like as a a way to start your new year. Because I like got hit in the face with a TikTok, of course, of this one quote. And I was like, oh my gosh, like that's so perfect. And so that's kind of what put it in my head. So I like having little things to think yeah. about. So yeah. So Mandy, do you want to start with one you're taking into the new year or one that you just enjoy? Let's start with the one that I want to take into the new year. Okay. It's short and it's sweet, but I just love the whole thing. So okay. the quote is, 
if you're coasting, you're either losing momentum or you're headed downhill. So basically, you just have to keep working. If things are feeling easy and you're coasting along, that's not a good sign. Like you should be working hard. You should be feeling like things are – you're doing something to like improve your life or your situation or whatever the case may be. Of course, you can apply this to like any area of your life. But yeah, if you're coasting, you're either losing momentum or you're headed downhill, which nobody wants to do. I like that. Yeah. That's a good one and like – I don't know. I'm turning 40 this year. And so I'm having a little bit of a crisis and I'm just thinking like, okay, what do I, where do I want to be in 20 years as far as like mentally, physically stuff? Like I just want to be able to move, do things with my kids, do things with my future grandkids. Like I want to stay active and like I'm, you're doing great with that, but I'm like trying to incorporate it more in my life because of that very reason. Like you're either, you have been especially this, year, this age, though, you're you've losing. Been getting, it. You have been doing a lot more of like walking and going to the gym. I've been so proud of you. I know, but like, but that's kind of where it comes from, though. It's like, okay, I'm I'm at the age where if I lose it, if I'm coasting, I am definitely losing it, like mobility, anything like that. So I'm like very much working, and I like that quote. That's really good. Yeah, I like it too. All right, so what do you got, Melissa? Okay, so this is the one that slapped me in the face this week. Okay. This is uh, by John Shedd. I don't know who that is. Um, Watch him be super famous. Whatever. Um, It's a ship in harbor is safe, but that is not what ships are built for. And I like that that one. Isn't that good? Yeah. I'm not a big like put a quote on the wall kind of person, but that one I really like because I'm a play it safe kind of gal. I like to not take risk. I like to coast. And um, so for me, just like doing big things are scary, but I want to do that. I want my kids to do that. And so I don't know, like looking into the new year, like it's okay to take risks. It's okay to try new things. And so that's what I want to do. Wow. Look at that, Melissa. I'm so, I'm I'm telling you, I'm turning 40 and everything is (laughs) falling apart. (laughs) I love that though. I mean, I kind of feel like both of them, both of the quotes that we shared are really kind of just about just taking that leap out there and just doing, you know, doing things that you want to do and just realizing that, you know, our time isn't forever and making the most of what, you know, what the time you have and things that you have the ability to enjoy, definitely take the time to enjoy them because people don't have, you know, full ability like everyone else sometimes. So I, um, I love those. Those are great. I, I do. I'm ready to move on to our funny ones, though, because this Let's is getting a little. Too, All right, go ahead. This is getting a little. Oh, mine! Too I don't real. think it's funny, but I like it. Okay. Oh, is it go okay? Ahead. Well, this one I like. Good. This is just one that I love. It's from my very favorite. Well, one of my favorite celebrities, which I know you'll be like, "Wow, you what? had a favorite celebrity." <laughs> <laughs> wow, you have a favorite celebrity. Is that what you thought I would say? Yeah, that's what I thought you would say. So, yeah. <laughs> so this is a quote by our lovely Reese Witherspoon. Okay, she said. If you're not yelling at your kids, you're not spending enough time with them. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I like that. Me <laughs> too. <laughs> probably true. Yeah. You're eventually, everybody's going to get on each other's nerves. That's a good one. I like yeah. that. Okay. Mine is by one of my favorite celebrities, Tina Fey, of course. <laughs> and you, I think you've heard me say this one, but like, I really do try to think of this one. Don't waste your energy trying to change opinions. So mine's actually not a funny. Do your, funny, do your thing and don't care if they like it. And that's kind of goes with my boat thing. But it's true. Like if I worry about what everyone thinks in every situation, I won't do the thing I want to do or the thing I'm supposed to do. And so if I like don't care, like if I 
reviews, I'm speaking to you almost directly. <laughs> I can't read them because I will change the way I do things. So to me, I just have to say, okay, like me, hate me, turn it off. I don't care. I'm going to keep doing what I like to do, what Mandy and I like to do, and that's just going to be how it is. I love that. I support that 100%. Thank you. Let's just Good. YOLO. We just do what we want. <laughs> I'm YOLOing in a boat out of the harbor, there and that's <laughs> what we're doing, and we're not coasting anywhere. Perfect. I love those. That was a great note to end on, I think, for this week. Um, yeah, yeah, I hope so. For sure. Real quick, um, before we go, just want to mention a couple things. Our new website is up, momsandmysteries.com. Please check it out. It's so cool. It's so, so hashtag cool. profesh. It's so legit. <laughs> and if you're looking for bonus episodes, we have patreon.com slash moms and murder podcast. We may change that link later, but right now that's what the link is. So you can find it in the show notes. Don't worry about that. You can also find it on the website. Um, if you want to hear ad-free episodes, you can do that on Patreon. If you listen on Apple, you can do Apple Plus subscriber, which is a cool new thing where you subscribe and get to listen to stuff. And we also have a YouTube page and a TikTok. So find all those things in our show notes. And you can find them on a website, on the website, whichever you prefer, but they will be there. Like you can watch our episodes, not watch us, but like there's some pictures on there. We're learning. Um, So so that is available for you. And also I have another podcast, Criminality. If you want to hear that, we just covered the Chrisleys. You know, the Chrisleys. Chrisley knows best. They just got in trouble for all this fraud and white collar crime stuff kind of similar in this story um and that episode came out last week if you want to check it out awesome all right guys well that was it for this week we will see you next week same time same place new story have a great week bye thanks so much for listening to the moms and murder podcast make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode you can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.